Good morning, folks. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we pray that this morning as we study the scriptures, we would be inspired by your word, we'd be encouraged in our daily walk, and we'd be strengthened in our faith and our commitment to walk steadfastly before you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Unless you live under a rock, you've been watching the international news on television, or heard it on the radio, or both. You've seen the story unfold with a clear underlying theme of bad and evil. You've seen the evil empire of Russia versus the courageous people of the Ukraine. And there's a large focus on the leadership, the evil former KGB agent, the megalomaniac, Vladimir Putin. And on the other side is the diminutive comedian, actor, turned politician, Volodymyr Zelensky, who, by the way, if you're a trivia buff, and this is important to know, because at the end of the sermon I'm gonna mention it again, Vladimir Putin was the voice, did you know that? The voice of Paddington Bear on the television series from the book Paddington Bear. So I know you didn't know that, but it's really important to know that because later on I'll mention it. Paddington Bear, kind of hard to take him seriously when you know that he did that, but he's a pretty serious guy. The Bible itself is full of great stories of good versus evil and bad guys versus good guys. And a lot of times in the Bible, the bad guys really wear black hats and the good guys wear white hats like our old television stuff. It's really clear which is which. And what's fun for me as I study the Bible is these little character sketches. And, and we can learn a lot about, not only learn a lot about God and his reactions to us and his desires for us, but we can learn a lot about mankind when we look at these character sketches. There, there are kind of fun pieces in there sometimes because the characters are so odd and weird. Sometimes the people in the Bible are just really strange. And in these character sketches for today, we're going to see uh, three in particular. We're going to see one bad, bad, bad king, <coughs> super bad king. And we're going to see his wife who is worse. It's, it's hard to be worse than the bad, bad, bad king, but she's worse. I was thinking about it this morning. I was thinking, I wonder if anybody in history over the last 3,000 years has ever named their child Jezebel. Probably not. It's one of those names that goes down in history as, this is a bad person. And then we're going to see this other weird character. He's a strange person. He's one of the prophets of God. But he's very, very bold, and very outspoken, and very committed. Worth looking at. The prophets in the Old Testament were often strange characters who spoke for God. Sometimes they would foretell the future. Often they would rebuke leaders of the nations, whether they were kings or queens, or sometimes religious leaders. The prophets would speak out often against an entire nation. One of the punchlines of 
how they could do that, why they did that, was in the reading for this morning when it said that Elijah understood that his power came from God. Sometimes they were speaking to pagan nations. Sometimes they were speaking specifically to the chosen people of God. They were always trying to do this, though. They were always trying to speak truth into the lives of the people. They were often warning people for their own sake, saying, God wants this, God expects this, God demands this, and you're on the wrong track and you need to quit doing it. And very often the prophets were totally ignored. They just, the people were like, nope, no thanks. Thanks for the, thanks for the message, but we don't care, basically. And the people were strongly influenced by looking elsewhere in the society around them and saying, well, everybody else is doing this, everybody else is doing that, everybody else says this is fine, everybody says this is okay. Let's live like the people around us, which is a strong temptation for us as Christians in the United States of America, to just kind of yield to the culture and go with the flow. I met last night with a friend that I hadn't seen in probably 20 years who was a retired school teacher. And he said, Darren, do you have any idea what's happening in the schools, in the public schools in Mecklenburg and Union County? And I said, I probably don't. I probably don't want to hear it. But the culture has influenced our children and us as adults. This Old Testament prophet is the one who gets named the most often in the New Testament. He's really known, well known. His name is Elijah. And, and the children who have gone to children's church have been hearing about Elijah for a couple of weeks. And they've learned some great memorable stories. But the point today is going to be about faith, faithfulness, and trust, and how that plays out with Elijah, how people react, including those who believed in the one true God, and including those who reject God. Elijah shows up. Here's a quick run-through to set everything in the proper context. The book of 1 Kings is where Elijah shows up. And the book of 1 Kings starts with this. It starts around the time of Israel's king being David, and David's about 70 years old. And the Israelites had done very well by that time, economically, politically, spiritually. And then King David was succeeded by Solomon, his son. Solomon's claim was great wisdom, and he's the guy that got the temple finished and built in Jerusalem. The temple, got to remember, the temple to worship the one true God is in Jerusalem. Pretty soon in 1 Kings, around the 10th or 11th chapter, it says that the, it talks about the kingdom being divided. The chosen people, the 12 tribes of Israel, have a split. Ten tribes in the north become what's then called Israel. Instead of all of them being Israel, it's the 12 tribes, 10 here and 2 here. The two tribes in the south were called Judah, and that's where Jerusalem is, with the one true good temple. The bad news is that God's chosen people of the ten tribes up in the north ordinarily would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, but they're forced by a new king, Jeroboam, to stay home. 
you can't cross the border and go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple because he was afraid that they would begin to become allies again with their two tribal brothers down in Judah. So for political reasons, he forbade them from going down there. And then, under his leadership, they began to offer up sacrifices to false gods. They became subject to the society around them and adapted to the culture and adopted as their own the worship of false gods, just like the pagans that lived around them. In fact, the king himself, we think, is the one who introduced the idolatry of golden calves, plural. They had been a golden calf incident earlier, a long time ago, and now he sets up temples to two different golden calves. And one of the keys to understanding how God feels about this is that it says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So God tells them, quote, As much as I lifted you up from among the people and made you, Jeroboam, the king over my people Israel, you did not do like King David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart, to do only that which was right in my eyes. But you did evil, made idols, and worshiped false gods. And here's a key, key little phrase. And provoked me to anger. That's, that should make you kind of cringe a little. You don't want to provoke God to anger, amen? <laughs> How would you like it if a prophet of God walked in and said, you, Grace Covenant Church, According to God Almighty speaking through the prophet, you provoked God to anger by the way that you live and the way that you worship and the way that you pray and the way that you practice your faith and the way that... That is a scary proclamation. I, I can't imagine it. This is God. You've got to remember, God is omnipotent. You're going to find that out later on, right? You already read the end of the story in the scripture reading. You provoke God to anger and he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, and he's all-loving, and he's all-gracious, kind, generous, forgiving. But you don't want to provoke him to anger. You did evil. You made idols. You worshipped false gods. Bad news part one, the king sinned and really provoked God. Bad news part two, the nation, the ten tribes, provoked God to anger because they followed what the king was doing, and they worshiped the golden calves. They substituted an image just made out of gold for the worship of the one true God. Bad news part three. God is provoked to anger, and he's not going to forget. A few verses later, we learn bad news part four. Rehoboam and the people of the southern kingdom of Judah did the same thing. They lasted a lot longer, but they did the same thing. They held on to their faith for a while, and then they began worshiping in idols. So now all of the chosen people have been influenced by the society that they lived into. Well, almost all. Not quite all. But that history is relevant 
Because we see how people are sometimes inclined to follow the leader, even when he's corrupt. Sometimes people are inclined to become like the people around them, to walk like them, talk like them, dress like them, and just blend in. As I was driving to church this morning, I always, I always observe people going to church. I drive up Providence Road from down in South Charlotte, and I pass a dozen churches. You know what I noticed driving in? All the cars are really nice, fairly new, expensive cars. Well, we live in a wealthy city. You know, the other thing that I noticed, though, I had already written my sermon, so I was kind of keyed into this, and I looked. I was trying to see somebody that looked different going to one of the dozen churches. I didn't see anybody different. They were all dressed kind of like us. They could walk in here and fit in and blend in. We all blend in with our society. Almost all. The good news is God remains the same. God loves his people. He gets tired of their mistakes. He hates idolatry. He remains faithful and he remains sure that the truth will be revealed and again and again and again. The truth will be revealed. That's God's plan. Part of his plan for the redemption of people is that the truth would keep on being spoken. Good news part two. Sometimes he uses a faithful, bold, courageous person to speak the truth, like Elijah. The king of Israel was Ahab, bad guy. It says he, quote, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And listen to this. How bad was he? Because I said he was bad, bad, bad. How bad was Ahab, the king? It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Can you imagine that? That's like a teacher in fourth grade saying, Darren McGrew, I've been a teacher for 36 years and you're the worst kid I've ever met. I mean, that's, but this is God saying this king is the worst king ever, ever. There'd been some really bad kings. If you read the book of Judges, you read 1 Kings, the beginning of 1 Kings, you read the story of bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, the nation repented, they got back all right, and then they failed again, and they were bad, and then this is the worst of the worst guys. He's terrible because he's spiritually bankrupt and immoral beyond belief. And as, that, as if that wasn't bad enough, pay attention to this phrase. <clears throat> as if that wasn't bad enough, he married Jezebel. He's the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. He's the baddest, baddest, baddest king over the chosen people ever. And worse than being the bad, bad, bad guy, he married Jezebel. And you go, wait a minute, he just married some good-looking person? How could it be so bad? It's worse than being the bad king that he married Jezebel. Why? And you have to ask yourself when you're studying the Bible, this is what makes it so fun as you study the scriptures, you ask yourself questions like, what in the world 
made it such a bad thing for him to marry Jezebel. I mean, seriously, how, how horrible could that, could that be? It, 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 as if following the sinful footsteps of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not bad enough, he married Jezebel, quote, the daughter of King Ethbaal, otherwise pronounced as Ethbaal, little red flag, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. You'll find out more about her sterling character in just a minute. But when you're reading something like that, ask yourself, why is that such a horrible thing? First, because the Israelites were absolutely forbidden from marrying pagans. Jezebel and Ethbaal were from Sidon. They were Sidonites, where the people were polytheistic, or Sidonians, excuse me. And the people were polytheistic. And second, she was the daughter of a guy with what? With a weird name, weird name. You know, we, we read the Bible, and sometimes when we're reading through some of these books, I, I tell people all the time, you know, when you're reading one of these books, and you go, and, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, and you're trying to pronounce the Hebrew names, and you're just clueless. So I teach people, when you're reading the Bible, and you're doing your daily devotions, just say, and hard name begat hard name, who begat hard name, and hard name said the hard name. It, it, it's hard to pronounce those names. But Ethbaal should have struck a little chord with us, or a little discordant note, because we know that Baal was one of the really, 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 really bad false gods that everybody worshipped when they shouldn't have. We know that Ethbaal was a priest in a pagan religion, worshipping false gods. He wasn't just a worshipper of false gods, he was one of their priests. And so the king over God's chosen people of the ten tribes in the north married the daughter of a priest in this horrible religion. Historians tell us also that if he got to where he was, it was because he assassinated the person before him. So he was a priest and a murderer. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. How'd you like for that little indictment? Not only is he a bad, bad, bad king, but he provoked God to anger more than everything. So Elijah, if you want to know the first characteristic in the, in the study of Elijah, so Elijah should have said to himself, I'm just... I'm just a little preacher. I'm just, I'm just me. I'm just, I'm just a good guy that tells people about God. Every now and then I can foretell the future. I can say, hey guys, uh, stock market's going to go up on Monday. And I just foretell the future. Elijah should have said, boy, things are bad. and God really hates that situation up here. And he probably should have just gone on down to Judah and said, man, I'm going to sneak across the border. I'm going to get to Judah. I'm going to worship at the temple because I love God and God loves me. And every now and then God gives me a word to say. What does he do? First character trait of Elijah uh, is he's either crazy or he's courageous. Amen? Because he confronts King Ahab. 
He doesn't just confront him. He says, you know what? Until I say so, it's not going to rain again. <laughs> I'm like, man, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to tell the king that it's not going to rain again. Let me ask you, is he nuts? What makes Elijah think he can declare a drought on the nation, and what does he think is going to happen if the drought happens with the king? But he's courageous. And then God says, hey Elijah, guess what? You need to go camp out somewhere else, buddy. You need to go camp where there's water. Because it's not going to rain for a long time, and the rivers and the streams and the creeks and the wells are going to all dry up. I'm going to send you to a special place for your own good. God protects this courageous prophet. And he sends him to a brook. And he gets to this brook and camps out, and there's no food. And God sends him food. He sends him bread and meat every morning and every evening. If you don't think the story impacts people's lives, years ago, I led a group of people from Calvary Church to Hungary, and we worked with teenagers and taught an English camp and had a blast. And then I went into Romania when it was still under communist rule. And I asked my host, what do the people need here? And he looked at me like I had three heads. Under Ceausescu, the people were starving in Romania. It was an incredibly awful dictatorship. And I said, what do the people in Romania need? He said, well, which people? And I said, what do the pastors need? He said, food. I was like, yeah, right. Have you ever met a pastor in America that looked undernourished? <laughs> Some of the pastors in America, this pulpit wouldn't fit. I, we, you know, we, we got food. And I said, what kind of food? And he laughed. He said, come with me. So we went into a butcher shop in this little village in Romania. And I said, tell him we want some meat. We want to buy some meat for the pastors. I've, I've got a lot of money. And he said, okay. And he tells the butcher, they're speaking Hungarian, actually, in that part of Romania, Transylvania. And the butcher comes out, and he's got a package the size of a shoebox, a lady's size 8 shoebox, not a... NBA player size 14. It's a little shoebox. And it's all wrapped in butcher paper and taped up, and he hands it to us. And I said, no, he didn't understand. I meant we want a lot of meat. The translator says, that's all there is for the entire village. A little shoebox. Being a typical American, I want to know, you know, is it sirloin, or is it you know, filet mignon, or is it roast beef, or is it prime rib, or is it whatever? I said, what kind of meat is it? He said, Darren, it's meat. I said, what kind of meat? He said, does it matter? That's all the meat there is. And my point is that God provides 
for his people, and sometimes his people suffer. And he's looking at Elijah by the stream and goes, this whole nation is now in deep trouble. There's a drought. Now there's nothing growing. You can't grow your vegetable garden. You don't have any water. You don't have any rain. And God says, the ravens will bring the bread and the meat. And you know what the pastor told me that I gave that meat to? I'll never forget this Romanian pastor. He said, as God provided bread and meat to Elijah by the stream, you have been sent by God to provide meat for me and my family. Oh, man. I was like, no, it wasn't me. I was too stupid to know what I was doing. I was just kind of being a nice guy. But God can use us. So the meat and the bread ended. And God says, you need to move on. So the next part of Elijah's little story is, okay, move on. Go to this village. And when you get to the village, you're going to meet a widow there. And he goes to the village. And he meets a widow who's got a son. And she, uh, he says, give me a drink. And she draws some water for him, gives him a drink, and he says, I'm hungry. And she looks at him like he's nuts. Probably. And she says, you don't understand. I only have enough flour and oil to make one little batch of bread. That's all I got. And I'm going to prepare this for me and my son. And basically, the implication was, and then we're going to die of starvation because we've got nothing left. we just got a little bit to make one little recipe full. And he says, fine, give me some. And, and you think again, what happened to Elijah's brain? Is he nuts? He's going to take the bread from this one lady who's got enough just to survive on for one more day. Or is he trusting in God that there's a reason that he's been sent there? He knows why he's in the village. God sent me. And he knows he's supposed to say, hey, I'm hungry, give me some food. So she complies, and a crazy miracle occurs. Second miracle. I call the ravens the first miracle. This is the second insane miracle. So she takes the little bit of flour and oil that she's got, she makes him some bread, she shares the bread with him, and she looks back in the cupboard, and she's still got flour and oil in the cupboard. And every day she makes bread, and every day she looks in there, and it's replenished by God. What a crazy miracle. So the food continues. And you would think she would say to herself, who is this God that you worship? How is, what magic is making flour and oil keep producing, reproducing in my cupboard? You'd think that's what she's thinking. But her son dies. And she blames Elijah and says, you've brought this catastrophe into my family. My son's dead and it's your fault. And Elijah prays and the son comes back to life. And the punchline for this lady is she says, now I know that you are a prophet and that the Lord really does speak through you, amen? Sometimes we're slow to grasp the obvious. Sometimes our friends 
and our family members are slow to grasp the obvious truth that God is alive and well and he's immutable, unchanging, he's omnipotent, he can work miracles, and he can change lives. Amen? Sometimes we overlook that and forget about it. Then Jezebel shows up in the next chapter. You want to know how bad Jezebel was and why all this bad talk about Jezebel? She came from this bad dad. And, and it says, when Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah took a hundred of the good prophets and hid them in two caves and two groups of 50. What was Jezebel doing? Killing God's chosen prophets. She was having them murdered. Why? Because she hated what they were doing. They were talking about the one true God and she was talking about the false gods that her dad had taught her to worship. They had built temples to the false god. And she didn't like it. She didn't like the competition. She didn't like the subversive people who spoke for the one true God and had a murder. Nice lady. Not such a good choice for a king to marry. So ultimately then, Ahab meets up with Elijah, Ahab the bad king. And, and he basically says, are you the guy that has caused all the problems in my nation? You're the dude. It's your fault. First of all, it was kind of courageous of, of Elijah to even agree to go meet with the king. Because when Obadiah said, you're not, you're not going to go meet with the king. I'm not telling the king that you're alive. Are you crazy? I don't want to be the one that goes and tells the king, hey, I found Elijah, the bad guy, and, and the, the king's going to have me killed. And Elijah says, don't worry about it. I'll show up. I'll be there. I'll be on time. I'm not afraid. Elijah replies to the king's accusation and says, I haven't brought disaster on Israel, but your father's you and your father's dynasty have by abandoning the Lord's commandments and following the Baals, the false gods. And now Elijah issues this famous challenge. It's my favorite part. Elijah says to the king, send messengers out, get all of Israel together before me at Mount Carmel, as well as a bunch of the prophets of Baal. How many prophets of Baal were there? 450 prophets! In case you wondered if they're paying attention, 450 prophets of Baal. A bunch of these pagan prophets. It says there were 400 prophets of Asherah whom Jezebel supported, her own little group. And here's the deal. The challenge from Elijah. He said, get everybody together and get 450 of those prophets. And 400 of those prophets, get them all together in the same place at the same time. And gather up two bulls to be offered as a sacrifice. It's a great story. Because God's chosen people at that time were in the practice of offering sacrifices on the altar, at the temple, to please God, you would take one of the best of your animals, a sheep or a goat or a lamb or a dove or a bull, and you would sacrifice the good one from your flock, the best one, to say, God, all that I have is yours. 
and I'm going to give you the best of the best, and I'm going to sacrifice it on the altar to you, and may the aroma of this burnt sacrifice be pleasing to you, God. I love you, and I acknowledge that everything I have comes from you. That was the sacrificial system. It was an acknowledgement that God has blessed me, and, and I appreciate it, and I love God, and God's good. And so he says, okay, y'all do the sacrifices too. They were doing these weird sacrifices and things. It wasn't anything unusual for them to offer sacrifices because they did it all the time, but they sacrificed to the false gods. So the pagans go out, they get two bulls to be sacrificed on an altar, and the pagans cut up their bull into pieces, and they put the pieces on the altar that they had built, and they had wood to light it on fire, and, and, and you know, Elijah's, And the false prophets prayed to Baal from morning until noon and got no answer. And they jumped around on the altar that they had made and they're praying for their God to light the fire. Here's one of my favorite parts of the story. If you didn't like Elijah before, you're gonna like him now. So they're praying to Baal Light this fire. Show them your power. Baal was supposed to be in charge of things. In their religion, Baal was in charge of fire, rain, dew, uh, the weather. And they were praying to this God that they believed could do all this powerful stuff. Which is kind of funny because they've been in drought. <laughs> they've been in drought caused by the one true God. And Baal hadn't changed the drought for him yet. So now they're praying, light this fire and prove that you're real. And Elijah, at noon, after they'd been praying from morning till noon, and they're jumping around on the altar that they had made, jumping around on the altar themselves, thinking that if they jumped around and were hysterical enough that maybe Baal would hear them. Like, if we raise our voices, and Elijah mocks them, and he says this, which tickles me no end. Yell louder. <laughs> After all, he is a God. He may be, and he's teasing them with what their own words, because they thought Baal did these things. He may be deep in thought, and they thought that Baal was a God who meditated often. He may be deep in thought, or perhaps he has stepped out for a moment. Or taken a trip. Maybe he's on vacation. <laughs> I'm serious. Perhaps he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. That is what I call razor-sharp sarcasm. I love it. Yell louder, maybe he's taking a nap. So they yell louder. <laughs> How dumb are they? They yell louder. And they cut themselves with swords and spears until their bodies were covered with blood. Why? Because they thought Baal was the kind of God that would be pleased by the shedding of their blood. And if they pleased him enough, he would answer their prayer to light the sacrifice and prove himself. Throughout the afternoon, they were in an ecstatic frenzy, but there was no sound, no answer, and no response. You underline no, no, and no. Nothing, not a zip. And now it's God's turn. And Elijah doesn't mess around. He gathers up some stones. 
Anybody know how many stones he gathered up? Children's church, how many stones did he gather up to make the altar? How many tribes were there in Israel? He gathers up 12 stones. Very symbolic. Representing the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what? If I was Elijah, I probably would have gathered up two stones. He gathers them up and says, you know, we are a nation of people chosen by God. We are the apple of God's eye, it says. The Jewish nation, even though they're divided, and even though they got bad king, good king, not so good king, bad king again, you know, he says, I'm gathering up 12 stones. We are one united people under God. And he builds an altar out of stone. And he puts the pieces of his bull on top of it. And he doesn't put any wood on it. And you go, okay, seriously. If you're gonna, if you're gonna sacrifice a bull and, and burn it and let the smoke rise and be pleasing to God, you gotta put wood on it. And he says, dig a trench around the altar for me. And they dig a trench. And they're like, what for? And he says, go down to the river and bring up some water. And they bring up four gallons of water and they pour it on top of the meat. And it pours off the meat and off the altar and goes into the trench. And he says, that's not enough, go do it again. And they make another trip down to the river and bring up four more gallons. And they go down and bring up four more gallons. They drench everything. They got all this water there. And he says, O Lord God of Abraham, is Isaac and Israel. What's he doing? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Why say that? Because he's reminding them that that's their God. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he's reminding God, God, we know who we are. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. In other words, it's not me, it's not my power, it's not my strength, it's not my magical abilities, it's not me cutting myself and bleeding, it's not me yelling, it's not me jumping up and down on the altar. I'm doing what you would have me do. It's under your power. Answer me, O Lord, answer me this, why? So that I'll look good so that I'll feel good about myself, so that I'll have power in the nation, so people will listen more to me because I'm the prophet. He says, answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. He wants them to know that this miracle that you're about to perform is gonna be because of his power, his strength, his desire, to reunite the people and turn their hearts back to the one true God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood. I apologize, I said no wood, there was wood. It consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. It consumed the stones, how hot? I don't know, but it gotta be pretty hot to consume the stones and consume the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Amen? Yes. 
What's the point? The point is this. God is faithful. God is unchanging. God is omnipotent. God's servant, Elijah, acknowledged, I'm your servant. I'm, not, I'm nobody, but I serve you. God's servant was courageous and trusted in the character of God and understood that God loves his people. We gain courage in life through the example of people like Elijah, but mostly we gain courage and strength from understanding the character of the one true God. I performed a funeral on Friday for a young man who died when he was 35 because his dad is a friend of mine. How do you console a family whose 35-year-old son dies all of a sudden? You remind them of the character of God. Amen? You remind them that God is good. God is merciful. God is love. God is compassionate. God is generous. God is gracious. Elijah was a man of courage, outspoken, unafraid of the king who planned to kill him, and the, unafraid of the queen who had been killing other prophets. And here's Paddington Bear. Ready? A Paddington Bear quote, really and truly. I've never quoted Paddington Bear from a pulpit before, so I'm happy with this. Paddington Bear says, the bear puffed out its chest. I'm a very rare sort of bear, he replied importantly. There aren't many of us left where I come from. Hmm. Now he was talking about a brave bear who loved marmalade and put a marmalade sandwich in his hat and all that fun stuff in Paddington Bear. Book. But there aren't many of us left who love God, who refuse to let society change us into the mold around us, who take a strong stand for the truth, who stand against evil, who proclaim evil, evil, and good, good. Men like Elijah are rare but much needed. People who take a stand for the truth when it's needed are incredibly important according to God's design and plan. What does the world say around us about all the different issues? Oh, it's okay. It's fine. It's a woman's right to choose. It's this. It's that. It's whatever. You know what? We must take a stand for the truth. God is concerned with what? God's not so concerned about the Ukraine and Russia and the invasion and what's happening politically. God is concerned with eternity. Yes. God's concerned with faith in him as the only true God. God is the one awesome, incredible, omnipotent God of faithful love. That term hesed, that, that faithful love of God demonstrated for thousands of years is important for us to remember. Let me close with a quote from Psalm 86. It says, But you, O Lord, 
are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen? You're merciful, gracious, slow to anger, you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we can hang our hat on the character of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that even for Elijah, as one of your prophets, it took some serious trust in your faithfulness and in your power. For Elijah, it took a clear understanding that he wasn't operating under his own power, but according to your will and your strength and your design. May we trust in you and you alone. May we place our confidence in you. May we gain our strength from you. Father, I pray that we would not forget our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Please protect them. Provide for them. Keep them in the palm of your hand. Give them hope and strength for the future. We pray that you would bless our brothers and sisters in Poland and the other surrounding countries who are reaching out today, this week, next month. They're reaching out in the name of Jesus to help the women and the children who are refugees from the Ukraine. Bless them. Reassure them of your presence. And help them to speak truth to their friends and their neighbors who are seeking help. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you so much.